The death of UN Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld remains one of the biggest mysteries of the 20th century. Shortly after midnight on the 18th of September 1961, an aircraft carrying the Swedish statesman and his UN team crashed into a dark forest on the Congolese border. He was flying over the British colony of northern Rhodesia, now known as Zambia, on a mission to bring peace to the Congo. Only one of the 16 passengers was found alive, Harold Julian, his chief of security. He died six days later. As details of the crash emerged, so did more and more questions. Why did the only survivor refer to an explosion before the crash? What about a second plane that had been seen following the Secretary General's aircraft? Why had it taken 15 hours to find the plane when the debris had gone down only eight miles from the airport? And why did Hammarskjöld's body have no burns on it when the other victims were badly charred? Initial investigations by the colonial authorities attributed the crash to pilot error, but many around the world suspected sabotage. They pointed the finger at Britain, Belgium, the USA and South Africa, as well as the huge multinationals with mining interests in the region. These suspicions have never gone away, and a fresh UN investigation is ongoing, all sparked by a book called Who Killed Hammarskjöld by Dr. Susan Williams. Welcome to Afterwards from Hearst Publishers. This series focuses on six books that have shaped Hearst over its 50 years as an independent publisher of nonfiction. I'm Michaela Rong, a journalist and author specialising in Africa. I'm here today talking to historian Susan Williams in her home about her book, Who Killed Hammerschult, first published in 2011 by Hearst. Hello, Susan. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us about uh, your very important book. Hello, Michaela. It's very nice to be doing this with you. Before we go into the events themselves, tell us a bit about what's happened since your book came out, because you're in this very unusual, very satisfying position of being an author who, and a historian who is seeing impact within the lifetime of your book because of your book. So tell us about that. Well, in late December 2019, the UN General Assembly adopted a resolution presented by Sweden to extend a UN investigation that had already been set up and had already reported to the UN Secretary General, about which the General Assembly was extremely happy and wanted to go forward. And I think that the history of that, the recent history of that, is compelling in terms of the decisions taken by the UN. Just briefly to give some background... After the book came out in 2011, somebody phoned me from the House of Lords, Lord Lee of Crondall, and he said, I've just read your book. There's got to be another investigation. And I said, well, that would be good, but um, I'd be very doubtful that's going to go forward. But yes, wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, he was determined, and he set up a what was called a Hammerschultz Inquiry Trust with International Great and the Good to set up the Hammerschultz Commission of Inquiry to evaluate the evidence that had emerged and to consider whether or not on the basis of that that evaluation a recommendation should be made to the UN to reopen the investigation. Well, the Hammerschultz Commission evaluated the evidence and they 
said that, yes, there is persuasive evidence that the aircraft was subjected to some form of attack or threat, and they recommended to the UN that it renew the investigation. The Secretary General was extremely interested and responsive. It was decided that, yes, the UN would reopen in the investigation and go forward. It was just extraordinary. Mm. The former Chief Justice of Tanzania, Judge Ottman, Mahanti Chandi Ottman, a man who is a brilliant lawyer uh, with complete integrity, very judicious, was given the role of being eminent person to set up an investigation and draw some conclusions, which he did. He's now produced a series of reports. And in that process, there have been successive resolutions presented to the General Assembly by Sweden with co-sponsors, which have continued to renew and extend the investigation. This looks as if it will be the final extension. And so it's now really important that um, a lot of energy is put on supporting the investigation worldwide. Like most people of my generation, I had vaguely aware of Dag Hammarskjöld's death in 1961. The first time it seriously crossed my path, though, as a significant political event was when I was researching my own book on Mobutu's Congo. And even then, it wasn't a big part of the story or it didn't come across. It was just this mysterious death that was intriguing, but there didn't seem to be any detail. And the, the mystery death that really did intrigue everybody when I was doing my research was the death, the murder of Patrice Lumumba, the first prime minister of uh, post-independence Congo. So looking back, it does seem quite strange that this very prominent man should die in such dramatic circumstances. And then very quickly, as far as the rest of the world, not Sweden maybe, but the rest of the world was concerned, it became a, a footnote of history. Why do you think that happened? Why do you think that amnesia set in so swiftly? When the Rhodesian Commission of Inquiry investigated Hammarskjöld's death and why the plane had crashed, they drew the conclusion that the crash had been caused by pilot error on the basis of the fact that there was no other evidence to support any other explanation. The UN investigation that took place in 1962 drew the conclusion that it could not exclude sabotage. It felt obliged to reach an open verdict and it rejected the theory of pilot error on the grounds that there was no evidence to support that on the basis of that conclusion by the UN investigation, the UN General Assembly passed a resolution specifying that if any new evidence were to be made available, then the UN should reopen that investigation. And that is pretty powerful. And I think that underlines what you've just said. It's odd that there was this amnesia about what happened to the death of this incredibly important international civil servant in a crash that could not be explained. So what prompted you to get interested in the story? Because um, sometimes there's a conversation or a sort of lightning strike that hits uh, an author and they think, OK, this is what I want to do research for the next few years. Well, there was no lightning strike. I was writing a different book at the time, which was looking at the resistance of white settlers in the bottom third of the continent of Africa from east to west, who were very keen to resist the, the forces of African nationalism coming down from the north, pan-Africanism and the end of colonization. In the course of doing this research, I came across 
many references to the crash of the plane that had killed UN Secretary-General Hammarskjöld mm. and suspicions about what had happened. At the start, I have to say, I thought, hmm, conspiracy theory. You couldn't make this up. I mean, how on earth could it be the case that the UN Secretary-General was shot down, killed? And I discounted these references I found. But I found more and more. They were adding up. They were becoming more of a picture. And then there were just... It was a combination, I think, of finding some particular pieces of evidence and also the way it all started to gel together when I started feeling terribly strongly about it and felt that the crash that killed Secretary-General Hammarskjöld could be seen to be carrying that other story on its back, White Raw in Africa. And I started also to feel the loyalty and commitment, if you like, that so many African nationalists felt towards Doug Hammarskjöld. Mm -hmm. I started to feel it myself. And I started to feel a strong sense of injustice that the witnesses of what had happened on that terrible night, the way they had been treated, the Zambian witnesses, then, of course, it was Northern Rhodesia, the British colony of Northern Rhodesia, described seeing shocking sights that night, explosion in the sky, many other details, and they were all disqualified and dismissed in the Rhodesian Commission of Inquiry, which, of course, represented the interests of white-ruled Federation of Rhodesia and Iceland. So let's talk about Hammarskjöld the man, because along with the amnesia has gone a, a general lack of knowledge about what he was like as a human being. Reading your book, I discovered all sorts of things about him I didn't know. Um, it comes across as a tad earnest, rather aloof, maybe a bit patrician. And then there, were all, there was a lot of speculation that maybe he was uh, a non-practicing Christian, maybe he was covert gay. But anyway, he definitely comes to life in your book in a way that I hadn't seen that done anywhere else. When Hamschult was appointed Secretary General in 1953, of course, the UN was still very young. He was the second Secretary General. The first Secretary General, Trig V. Lee, had not caused any waves, hadn't been a problem for anyone, all been very quiet. And it looks as if the expectation was, certainly by the US, by the Western powers, that Doug Hammarskjöld would be the same. In a sense, Hammarskjöld transformed the position of the Secretary General as, say, a local administrator, if you like, or some kind of bureaucrat, into an international civil servant who represented, as he saw it, the needs of all the member states, all the powers of the world, and who was especially very supportive of decolonization and very supportive of the new nations of Africa and Asia that were coming to prominence and joining the UN at that time. And it would be fair to say that the independence of the United Nations was very, very important to him. I mean, you see in his quotes coming across this theme of like, we will not be overly swayed by member states such as the US. You know, we, everyone will get due consideration. That seems to come through in his speeches. That's right. And that's what happened. And he, he made judgments in the light of the UN Charter, which represented the rights of people all over the world. And that was a very transformative thing to do and has been so much appreciated by the people of nations in Africa who went through a terrible time in their resistance of the occupation of colonization 
and in the movement for freedom. And Hammarskjöld was supporting them. And on the night of the crash um, in Indola in northern Rhodesia, Zambians had heard that Dag Hammarskjöld was coming to Indola. Some of the freedom fighters met together outside the airport, wanting to offer their support and their gratitude to him for taking their side. So what was he flying into Indola to do? What was his mission? His mission was to meet with Moise Shombi, the self-styled president of Katanga, the southernmost province of the Congo, now Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, which had seceded from the Congo shortly after independence. Um, um, so Dag Hammarskjöld was flying in to meet Nchombe and presumably to try and patch some kind of peace deal together. That's what we understand. Well, there was really a war going on and it had been, has been described as a third world war. And in Katanga, between Chombi and the mercenaries propping him up and the Belgian advisors and others who were propping him up, and the UN. In the course of investigating the downing of that plane, how did you go about it in terms of uh, who you talked to? Because I noticed that there were a lot of mercenaries and spies seemed to cross your path while you were doing your research. Very colourful characters on the whole. I think I should say, though, that in many ways, I certainly had some colourful meetings, colourful incidents. And in fact, a number of quite scary ones. But for the most part, my research was done in archives. Right. <laughs> um, in many different countries. And arguably, it was the w research in archives that led to the opportunities to push the investigation forward. One of my most exciting discoveries in the course of the research was in the records of Lord Elport, who was the British High Commissioner in Salisbury, which was the capital of southern Rhodesia, which was part of the Federation of Rhodesia and Nyasaland. It's so complicated, it really is. Well, Lord Elport was very much involved in the plans to bring Hammersholt to Indola and the plans to bring Chombi to Indola to meet. Mm -hmm. And Lord Elport is the person who said that evening on the 17th of September, when the plane was not arriving, which it was supposed to have done, he said, it looks as if the plane has gone elsewhere. Let's close down the airport, which is a very strange thing to say. This was the UN Secretary General. Mm. <laughs> you know, everything should just have stopped and um, what's happening? But mm. he didn't. He said, it must have gone elsewhere. Let's close the, play, the airport down. Really extraordinary. Well, I went to look at his records at the University of Essex. I found a long report describing what had happened from his point of view on the night of the crash of Hammarskjöld's plane. And he sent that report to London. At the back of that report, I found an appendix. And this was a further report, a supplementary report, by someone called Neil Ritchie. And he was MI6. Hmm? I can hardly believe it. And he described, Ritchie described, his own involvement in going to collect Chombi and his advisors on the other side of the border in Katanga and bringing them to Indola. And he'd had difficulties in doing this. 
case and made it clear he'd been very anxious and presented himself in a pretty heroic way. And with further details too, showing that Union Minière was working closely with him. I mean, MI6 was working with Union Minière, which in terms of the UN resolutions and the position of the UK at the time was, was not appropriate and not right. And indeed, Union Minière had provided all sorts of backup for Ritchie. Well, the records of MI6 are not available to the public unless MI6 decides it wants to release a record or two about some hero or other, which happens from time to time. But otherwise, they're not available, and MI6 records have not been made available to the judge. And before I came across that report in the Elport archives, there'd be no proof that any official of the security and intelligence archives um, of the UK were involved in this mystery at all. And suddenly I found it. That was, was really... So um, it was one of those light bulb moments. It really was. <laughs> it really exciting was. exciting moment. But it went on slowly because I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, huh, really? Very and I remember taking the train yeah. back to London and thinking, oh my goodness, that really is it. Mm. And I went back and... Um, <laughs> That really helped push things forward because no longer could the UK government say, you know, they had nothing to do with mm. it. I know you can't produce the definitive answer, but your title of your book is a teaser, Who Killed Hammerschold? And you must have a sense of in which direction the investigation is going to be going. Because we, we could have a scenario in which you had had an accidental downing in an attempt to divert. This is one of the scenarios you explore that a pilot set out to divert the plane to ensure it didn't land at Andola so that presumably the meeting wouldn't take place. There could have been an intentional downing. There could have been an, in, uh, an intention to actually kill Hammerschultz and all those aboard. I mean, there's a range of possible scenarios. Are you willing to say which one you tend to favour? Well, first, I would say that I am convinced that he died through sabotage, through foul play. And as you suggest, it could be because the plane was shot down. There are, however, reasons to, to develop the hypothesis that the crash was caused by a failed hijack. A hijack not where somebody took over the plane, but someone on another plane... And, of course, we know that the Zambian witnesses saw that there was a second plane in the sky that night, a small plane above Hammerschultz's plane, and that that plane had been instructed, well, not the plane, the people in the plane had been instructed to order Hammerschultz's plane to fly somewhere else. And that would fit with what Lord Elport said at the time when he said the airport should be shut down because the plane had gone, it looked as if the plane had gone elsewhere. And the hypothesis that Hammerschultz's plane, the pilot of Hammerschultz's plane was instructed to go elsewhere fits with the fact that two French speakers were found to have been at the front of the plane at the time of the crash. This has been shown by where the charred bodies were found on the crash site. Being given instructions by someone in the other plane was being given instructions in French. And the pilot therefore called... And called them to help. Yeah, yeah. Interpret, yeah. yeah. Obviously, he wanted to know exactly what was being said, hypothetically. So there are a variety of details that could support 
that hypothesis that it was a failed hijack. How relevant is the story to today? We're in a completely different world now. Africa achieved independence. The superpowers are no longer being described in the same terms that they were. The Berlin Wall has come down. But it seems to me there's still certain themes that are very relevant. The UN today, in its tussle for relevance on the world stage and the way in which quite often... America can be seen to be working against the Secretary General of the day. That seems to be an echo of the past. Where do you see the echoes? Well, I would say that at its most basic, this investigation has a huge importance. So far, the story of what happened that night and the story of what happened in many African territories in the middle of the 20th century, those stories have been told by the colonisers, from the colonisers' point of view. And the story about what happened with regarding the death of Secretary General Hammarskjöld has very much been told from the colonisers' point of view. Pilot error. I mean, when the book came out in 2011, that was the orthodoxy. Even the theory of pilot error regarding the crash of Hammerschultz's plane is telling the story of what happened that night from the colonizer's point of view because it dismisses the testimony given by Zambians who, in fact, risked all sorts of difficulties by giving testimony. And, in fact, some were put in prison, told they were lying and so on, and accused of stealing. And their voices were not heard. The voice that has been heard on this story has been that of the colonizing power with the support of um, the US, Belgium, France, and so on. And it seems to me it is really important that that the record is set straight. What do you think um, Doug Hammarskjöld would have thought of the UN today if he would sort of look at its um, the various crises we're facing, Syria... Uh, in particular Iraq, you know, would he be looking at the UN and thinking this is an organisation that is hobbled and limited and isn't able to meet its own noble aspirations, the aspirations when it was set up? Do you think he, he would sort of think, yeah, this isn't what I wanted it to become? I'm sure that there have, have been many moments in the recent decades of the UN which would have horrified Hampshire. And I think he would have repeatedly pointed out that there's a UN charter and um, decisions are not being made in accordance with the UN charter. But the UN does its best despite all those constraints. And I find it very moving that the current UN Secretary General Guterres said in relation to the investigation into Hammerschultz's death, he said, it remains our shared responsibility to pursue the full truth I consider this to be our solemn duty to my illustrious and distinguished predecessor, Doug Hammerschult, to the other members of the party accompanying him and to their families. So what was it like trying to find a publisher with this rather controversial book? Well, there was interest from publishers, serious interest, but also concern. And understandably, the publishers who were interested said, well, we just, we need to look into this and we need to have some meetings about that and were cautious. Well, I sent the book to Michael Dwyer of Hearst 
because I knew about Hearst's reputation. Hearst is a publisher that is ready and willing to challenge orthodoxies, in a sense to take risks. So not publishing books for profit and entertainment, but rather because these are books that are worth publishing. So I thought, okay, well, I'll send the book to Hearst. I got this wonderful email from Michael saying, yes, we want it. And no caution, just yes. That was extraordinary because, um, I mean, I, I suppose I myself at that point have thought, gosh, going down this road, I'm sort of taking some risks, you know. It's, <laughs> and I was thinking maybe this is all going to be too difficult. So to get that kind of positive response from Michael from Hearst was very exciting. What is also has been very important to me in terms of having this book published by Hearst is the support that Michael and Hearst have given to the book and to me. When the book came out, there were many interest groups and people who did not like it. They made that very clear to me. And there were times when I just thought, I'm not sure I can deal with this. And the team of people working at Hearst were so supportive of the book it really helped um at this point in time because of the first of all the Hammershell commission investigation and now the un investigation i think there's the consensus is that the idea of pilot error is doubtful and i think most people assume that there was foul play but when the book came out in 2011 it was not okay to say that and it was wonderful to be, in a sense, figuratively speaking, holding hands with a publisher who was willing to stand up. I mean, it, it certainly gave me more courage. So I will be forever grateful to Michael and to Hearst for supporting the book in that way and for believing in the, you know, the reliability of, of my research. To round off this podcast, Hearst have been asking each of their authors to answer one question. So um, just as your book will have influenced others and shaped the way they look at the world, what single book would you like to mention as having had a big influence on you and the way you, you saw the world? Well, I thought carefully about this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... My choice is a book by Kwame Nkrumah titled Neocolonialism, The Last Stage of Imperialism, which was published in 1965. And I read this many years ago and it bowled me over. And I read it again last year, in fact, on the plane to Ghana, and it bowled me over completely. And Kwame Nkrumah was such an extraordinary visionary man. I mean, there were so many amazing leaders in the continent of Africa at the um, the time of decolonization um, in the 20th century. And he describes so powerfully in this book the damage done by neocolonialism so that a state will have the trappings of sovereignty, but at the same time, its economic system is determined from outside, which also means that its political policies are determined from outside. And he states it so clearly and so well and there are various chapters offering a huge amount of detail. And indeed, there's a chapter on Union Minier, which we've been talking about. And he gives the figures. And wow, that, that's just extraordinary. And he just saw all that so clearly. 
and he speaks about the role of the CIA influencing unions, um, influencing cultural forms. And this was before the um, exposure of the role of the CIA in 1967 in the US, that CIA was involved in um, you know, set up all these magazines and fronts and so on to influence people. Kwame Nkrumah saw that before it was even exposed. It's quite a extraordinary... So a very visionary piece of writing, yeah? Absolutely. So thank you very much, Susan. That was really interesting. Well, thank you, Michaela. I enjoyed it very much indeed. Afterwards is produced by George McDonough. Thank you to Susan for taking part in this episode. Please do rate the podcast and subscribe on your preferred podcasting platform. It helps people to find out about this show. For more on Hearst, you can follow Hearst at Hearst Publisher on Twitter. And you can get news on the latest Hearst books by subscribing to their email updates at hearstpublishers.com. I'm Michaela Rong. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Afterwards podcast. If you like what you heard, we have a special discount code for any listeners wanting to order a Hearst book. Just visit hearstpublishers.com and use the code AFTERWARDS25. That's AFTERWARDS25 and you can get a discount code on any book Hearst publishes.